Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. Setting some uh, you time aside, right? That's really not about, you know, um, going to the movies or a date night or even, you know, professional stuff. Just kind of setting some quiet time aside just to kind of, again, reignite yourself into the things that really light you up. I have found that to be very beneficial. It's easy. It's free. But we know as professionals and leaders, time is money, right? We constantly hear that. That translates into, for a lot of people, dollars and cents. I just think we need to be conscious about it and, and, and plug it into our day. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 126. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Robert F. DeFinis. Robert has worked with children, athletes, coaches, teams, leaders, and organizations for over 20 years while consistently leveraging optimal performance strategies into success stories. He has a diversified background with extensive experience in education, nonprofit leadership, law enforcement, and behavior analysis. He is the creator of Total Optimal Performance Solutions and RDF Books, and co-founder of the Center for Teaching Excellence Online. His latest books include The Hero Teacher, Gen Exceptional, and several children's books addressing contemporary issues. Robert, so glad to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, so I, I read a lot, and sometimes I feel that the bios could be you know, packed with great information, but need to be translated for the simple people like myself to make sure that we fully understand what it is that you do. So I'm curious to know if you could distill in just a couple of sentences, what is it specifically that you do for your clients and how did you get started? So as far as my consulting, uh, I do a variety of things in the human resource development space. Uh, that's my passion is how do we get people moving in the right direction and how do we marshal people as leaders? Uh, professionally, also, I, I'm the campus director, uh, campus president, if you will, uh, for a uh, school for nursing. Uh, that's one of my passions as well, being in the higher education space. And then also, I kind of, I have a lot of side projects. I think I'm a, I, I consider myself an entrepreneur, you know, someone who's just in a variety of spaces, always trying to move the needle, um, just very passionate about uh, classroom teaching, leadership, those topics. Awesome. Well, I share a lot of experience there with you, and I also see that you're an author, which I am as well. So I'm um, curious to know how you got started in that area, and why did you pick children's books in particular? That's a, that's a great story, probably its own podcast as well. But um, uh, the short of it is, right at the onset of the, um, the pandemic, uh, it's something I always wanted to do. I wanted to get into the space. I just never found the time. And then like many of us, uh, it kind of just fell into our laps where we had this uh, time right out of the gate and we were trying to figure out how to occupy it while the, while the world was, was changing before us. And uh, so the time presented itself. And then the first topic did as well. My first book, and actually my book was the first book to address uh, the coronavirus uh, from the lens of children. And so within a few days and a few weeks, 
Uh, I had it out into circulation and uh, it, it did very well. And then from there, I just kind of realized there was a space to address contemporary issues, uh, to have conversations with children and for parents to be able to have that safe space to kind of dialogue the things that they're experience, experiencing and seeing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, you know, there's a lot we could unpack there. Obviously, I love the, the idea that you took advantage of an opportunity, even though it was a very scary time for for many many people um how did you as a higher ed professional find your way targeting a message for young children so my first stop in education actually i was uh, an elementary school teacher so i started I, I taught at the elementary level for four or five years I was a sixth grade math teacher so uh i had you know i had that experience in that space you know working with children also coaching uh, i've been coaching soccer, football, track and field for uh, the better part of 15 plus years. So I've always been in the space and I've had the ability to have those interactions and see how the children kind of view the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. So let's talk then for a moment, I guess, about the fact that you've crossed over between the, I don't know if I call it the corporate world per se, but certainly what we consider to be the business world and the world of education, so for-profit, non-for-profit, what would you say would be some leaders, I'm sorry, some lessons that people in the for-profit space could learn from the good people in our educational uh, domain, our teachers, our school leaders? What are some lessons that the average individual, most of the, most of my listeners um, are, you know, in in a in a traditional well, they're traditional nine to five. They're they're in the, they're they're out there in the world in the in the workspace. They're certainly in the for profit world. And as a former educator, I think there's a lot that that we as educators could teach to others. And I'm curious to get your take on that. I think it starts. We know this as business professionals, but sometimes it gets lost in the day to day and the minutia of the job that we have to do. But it it it's it starts and ends with people. And that's something that's never lost on an educator, I think, that something I, I do impress upon my teaching staff is that they are the frontline retainers. They're, they're the reason why students come is because of the professor or teacher in front of them to gain that knowledge and to you know, glean that experience. So I think, I think for me, that's something that's very powerful that we can take into the business world is the focus uh, the concentration, the centric mindset, if you will, that the people the people can make and break us. And I think that that's a, a, there's a lot of value to that. And I, I think in the business world, we have done that shift, especially in the last decade or so, where we've really focused in our, in our, our human capital and we understand that they, they are everything to us. So um, it's something that I think the education space gets gets right. And I think that we can adopt it in the business world. Okay. I hear that. And there's a lot of power in what you just said. I do wish more teachers yet would really, really focus in on the relational piece. Sometimes we get really stuck, if you will, on teaching content. Uh, I often joke with teachers when I do presentations that you're not teachers, but you're facilitators of learning. And we know that the gateway for learning is the relationship. So if I know, like, and trust you, there's a much greater likelihood I'm going to want to learn from you. Whereas if I feel that you're an ogre or you're mean to me or whatever, you just don't have my best interests in mind, or there's some other reason why there's a lack of synergy, 
I might still learn from you because I'm your student and I have to be in your classroom, but it's going to be more difficult. I'm certainly going to put up much more resistance. And I do believe that that's true in the, in, 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 you know, in professional life as well, maybe even more so because people aren't inclined to stick around in a place where they don't feel comfortable. They don't feel valued. Uh, they don't feel like, you know, they're really making a meaningful contribution or at least being recognized for it. So, so let's flip the question and let's, let's go with the opposite. In other words, what is it that educators could learn from their professional counterparts? Well, that's interesting. Uh, I, I, you know what, honestly, I don't know if I've ever really flipped it that way. So, but right out of the gate, I can think of something um, that from a for-profit educational model uh, into a, maybe a public or not-for-profit is treating it sometimes like a business, understanding that, especially from a higher education standpoint, these students are making an investment into their education. They're just not there because they have to be, which might be the K to 12 space, right? They're obligated to be there. But I think from a post-secondary standpoint, we can learn from uh, for-profit education that we have to really uh, invest back into you know, our students, you know, our college is a great example. We spend, um, you know, a pretty penny on making sure we have the best state-of-the-art material, uh, facilities, tools, things that are going to be really important for the student to succeed. And the student sees that, right? The customer sees that. So I think it's that also just adopting that customer kind of uh, philosophy that these aren't just students, really, they are paying customers, they're investing in our institution, we need to put the money back into it. So and they need to see that. Mm. Now, in the bio, I read this, and I, I saw it more when I when I did a little research about you before our, our presentation, I'm sorry, our, our discussion on optimal, uh, here's the, where's the language, um, optimal performance solutions. And you talked about helping people who are feeling stuck, people who are are not maximizing. So talk a little bit more about that. I'm hearing productivity. I'm hearing perhaps mindset in there, but that's my own interpretation. What is it that people are typically struggling with and what are the solutions that you're providing? I have found, uh, especially with leaders, and that's predominantly who I deal with, you know, upper management and the C-level, is that uh, when they get stuck, it's usually because... Uh, they have exhausted maybe their um, potential with creativity. They 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 don't go and pursue any more of their passions or the things that ignite them and light them up. And uh, they kind of get stuck in the the day to day. They're not pressing you know the boundaries of you know their profession. They're not engaged. You know professional development. I think sometimes is just kind of a buzzword. But truly, like what really are they passionate passionate about? that they can bring into their organizational setting and and kind of uh, ignite their people. You know, I, I constantly tell my people, I am very interested in life beyond the walls of our institution. What are you engaged in? What makes you know what makes you happy? Because if you're engaged in those things and you're, you know, you're out there beyond uh, the nine to five of of your work obligation and you're, you know, you're engaged in uh, community activities, uh, volunteerism, uh, you're taking uh, classes and they don't have to be in the space of, of what your, you know, your day job is, believe it or not, bringing those passions back into the work environment usually 
creates a lot of opportunity for the organization. So, you know, to to kind of bring it back to point to your question is I'm constantly working with professionals to kind of reevaluate, reexamine where they are currently in their in their uh, their work life and just kind of kind of focus in on what you know why why are you here? Why did you want to get here? You know, what produced all of those, you know, past, you know, uh, things that made you successful and then kind of reigniting that and just kind of getting them back on track. It's just a conversation, too, at the end of the day. I'm constantly having conversations with people uh, that are on, you know, my level and and above that that I think that sometimes they don't even have the space to do that. You know, C-level people, sometimes they feel kind of maybe isolated that they can't maybe have some certain conversations outside of, you know, uh, the day-to-day leadership role that they have. So I think that just even sparking some good creative conversation and just that ability to reflect, being reflective practitioner, I'm big on that, you know, going back and forth uh, on, you know, on what we've accomplished and, you know, what our goals are. So that would be some of the things. Okay. So I'm not suggesting people not reach out to you. I'd like that they would, but what I'm asking, I guess, is if I wanted to almost do a self-analysis what because because one of the questions I have in my mind, which I'll maybe circle back to, is, you know, if if you're if you're a dentist and I have tooth pain or some kind of issue with my mouth, I know that I need to call someone like you. If my car is not running properly and you're a mechanic, you know, you'll be able to help me hopefully. But oftentimes, when it comes to coaching and consulting, people's awareness of the problem is is a big piece of the whole process, meaning to say, if I don't believe, or I don't know even, that there's somebody out there that can help me in part because I don't even fundamentally or at least um, consciously recognize that I have a problem in the first place, right? There are plenty of people out there who are kind of just doing what they do, going in day in, day out. People probably like you described that don't look for help, that don't ever try to change things. They kind of, they, they accept it maybe for what it is. It's like that back pain that you never go to the doctor for, because you kind of assume it's just, I have a bad back, you know, issue and I'll never be able to resolve it. So part of it, you know, my mind is, well, how do people even know that someone like you exists? What are their pain points? What are they struggling with? And what's your language that you, that you communicate to, to bring them into that conversation, but leaving that alone for the moment, what would be their own inner dialogue if they wanted to quote self-diagnose? And I feel like, you know, I used to be so passionate. I used to love what I do. Um, I'm feeling like I'm on a treadmill at this point, all of that. What would be then the transition, if you will, where they could even without necessarily going the coach consultant route, start to think about ways of instilling uh, additional passion or perhaps identifying new possibilities that will reignite their, 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 you know, their, their work experience and all of that. Yeah. One thing we don't do enough of in my professional opinion is just take a break, stop, stop what you're doing. Right. Uh, I I'm, I'm a conscious believer in this. I spend a, a portion of my day, no more than a half an hour in, um, in kind of isolation. And it starts really in the morning. I like that ability to just kind of, I don't, I don't hop right on, the cell phone. I'm not checking emails right away. I do something uh, for me. I'm a news junkie, and it's the only time of the day where I will sit down with um, news, right? World news, local news, uh, industry news, and I'll just kind of fill my cup up a little bit, right? I know what's going on. I've learned that those 30 minutes 
really kind of set the stage for me. Um, it, it, it provides me, first of all, awareness. I kind of know what's kind of going on outside my own inner circle. Because think about it, if we just jump out of bed and we get right into the emails and we get right into the workflow, that could take us all the way through the end of the day. And all of a sudden, what do we do? Well, now we're, you know, now we have our personal lives. We have our family obligations. We have our community obligations. And then it's time for bed and we do this repeat. We're on this repeat cycle. For me, just taking that 30 minutes and just kind of understanding what's going on inside of my field, really digesting the, uh, who are the new thought leaders? Who are the key players? Uh, what are the new thoughts of the day? Right now, you know, everyone I think is really uh, on this uh, AI. You know, for me, six months ago, AI was just kind of like, ah, it's AI, it's in the back, big data. You know, you're reading things here and there. I made a conscious effort to really understand how is AI really going to impact the things that I'm involved with, right? But I had to spend time, conscious time to do that. And um, that's part of that 30 minutes in the morning. So I would say my recommendation, whether you're sitting down with someone like me or, um, you know, you're in some type of canned program that helps you to identify these things, setting some uh, you time aside, right? That's really not about, you know, um, going to the movies or a date night or even, you know, professional stuff, just kind of setting some quiet time aside just to kind of, again, reignite yourself into the things that really light you up. I have found that to be very beneficial. It's easy, it's free, but we know as professionals and leaders, time is money, right? We constantly hear that, that translates into, for a lot of people, dollars and cents. I just think we need to be conscious about it and, and, and plug it into our day. Nice. So again, come, before I come back to that point about the, the the messaging and how people can even come to that awareness that they might want to reach out to you, since you did mention AI, and I'm also on that early side of things, trying to understand, you know, I, I utilize it for for data research, if I'm putting together uh, some some material and I want to quickly grab different ideas, et cetera, it certainly could be very useful. Um, what would you say are two or three areas within AI in terms of its capacity that every leader should know about and should start to hone their skills around? So uh, one area that I'm uh, I'm starting to kind of um, evaluate for myself in terms of having the right people, right? One of my biggest philosophies, uh, something I cover in my book and something I'm very passionate about is identifying the right people to bring into the organization, right? So I think leveraging AI in, in, in that capability, uh, you know, the input, putting the things in from an organizational standpoint into some type of algorithm or in some type of um, system where I can start to kind of a maybe quantify the things that have worked well in this particular setting and that haven't worked well, right? And we can start to kind of then map out a recruitment strategy that makes sense. You know, we can't, I think sometimes we get stuck in generalizing, okay, the education space, this is the profile, this is what every educator should look like. And we, we know, we know better, right? It doesn't always work out that way. What is unique to my my college might not be unique to the college down the street. 
So I think AI can be leveraged in uh, the recruitment process and identifying candidates and then also managing performance. I think we, we, we aren't even scratching the surface. A lot of it is manual still. Uh, clients that I've had in the past that I've worked with from an HRD perspective are still doing things in spreadsheets and CRMs that are quite frankly out of date. And I think we can use some of the new tools and some of the new theories about uh, leveraging AI as a big, da big data resource and trying to figure out how we can we can answer some of these performance gaps. Got it. Okay. So would, would it be fair to assume I, I'm, I'm going to try to not um, expose just how unsophisticated I am in the area of AI, but I probably will with the question regardless. Um, I would imagine that there are different let's call it AI programs that one would need for different results. So in other words, this piece about recruitment or the other component about um, evaluation or assessment, job performance, et cetera, you're not going to do that on ChatGBT, right? At least not the way I understand its usage. So it's almost like, it sounds almost like a CRM on steroids where you're you're going to put your data in, but you're going to you're going to ask from it not just to sort of store information and maybe do some automated tasks, but actually to give you feedback on these individuals, how they're doing, what kind of people we want, does this does this resume align with, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's it sounds like there's a decent amount of customization involved, but I'm also assuming that there's certain programs that come with the framework already in place that makes that customization relatively straightforward. Is that a fair assumption? It is. Uh, while I don't have any recommendations today, uh, what actually my more, what I'm more interested in is mm -hmm. uh, the questions that could be answered by AI, right? I think starting at the, the beginning for me is, you know, I'm always, um, you know, when I look at, when I reflect back on something, so I look at it and I say, all right, we've had these employee, employees leave us, or we saw, uh, you know, employees dissatisfied with uh, the job that they're doing or how they're being led. That's where I come in and I say, wow, you know, uh, we could try to quantify this and put it into a spreadsheet and try to figure out manually, you know, what's going on here. We can do, we can look at the exit interviews and the surveys and all of that stuff that we we've had historically done in the organizations over the last few decades but really using ai beyond just you know what you said you know the the, the features of uh you know running it and creating outlines or uh using it as a research tool really how can we kind of leverage this to uh optimize performance and bring people into the organization that are best suited for, you know, what we're trying to accomplish. So that's where I'm kind of at. I'm not in the weeds yet with it. And like I said, you know, I think probably at the, I would say at the end of the summer, um, I really started, I, I'm getting all of these emails and I'm getting questions from, uh, you know, administrators like, well, you know, they're concerned about AI from a different standpoint, you know, um, academic integrity standpoint. And then I'm, I'm yeah. self-reflecting and I'm saying, I don't really know much about this, right? And that's where I really started to use my time in the morning to do some deep dives on not only the programs that exist that you've alluded to, but also how we can actually start to kind of reframe this and look at AI in a more positive way. As I'm sure you're aware, you know, if you start to do just general research, research online, 
start plugging things into Google about AI, you're going to get a 50-50 split on those that are fully on board with it and those that say we probably shouldn't even be going down this road. So where, where do we lie in the middle as you know practitioners in our crafts? What should we be doing? And I think you have to be really informed on uh, you know, where we're headed with all of this. Got it. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. Um, so I'm curious because you are both a teacher and a leader. And we, you know, I, I, I've talked many times about the importance of leadership in the classroom that teachers often think of themselves mainly as disseminators of content. They're focusing on making sure kids have knowledge and skills, but they're not really thinking about it from a leadership standpoint. And yet, if you go into a business or most organizations, corporations, most leaders think of themselves as the ones who have to drive the agenda, which is usually a profit-based agenda. It might have some other agendas as well, especially in the nonprofit space, but they don't necessarily see themselves as teachers. They don't necessarily see themselves as people that uh, they, they recognize that others might look up to them, but they may not necessarily embrace that identity per se or value it enough where it affects their practice. And I'm curious to know your thoughts since you've been, you know, across the spectrum, if you will, what could leaders be doing more where they, for them, either themselves to serve the role as teacher or to create a learning environment in their workplace so that people around them do feel inspired and engaged and they're growing and they feel more comfortable doing their work. They have more efficacy, all because they're not just thrown into the, the ocean and say, go swim, but they're really given an, an environment has been created for them to learn, to value it, to value, to ask questions, to value being vulnerable, all of those. There's a lot there, right? There's, <laughs> I, I usually save the simplest questions for the end. <laughs> I think um, I'm fortunate because I'm in a leadership, a formal leadership role in an education institution coming through the ranks of education. So I've seen, I've had the opportunity uh, at different stages, being in the classroom as a classroom teacher at the primary level, moving into the secondary level, being a, an, uh, a faculty chair, program administrator, and then in charge of a campus. So I can, I think I can draw on those experiences when I'm leading in an educational institution, but I have had stops along the way, specifically in the nonprofit space where I've had to lean a little bit upon my times in the classroom. And I do believe that when you're leading a group of students, you are, I mean, in essence, you are a leader. You are marshalling people to the end, to the end of a semester, uh, to the end of a goal, whether that's, you know, matriculating into another class or another program, or just at the end of the day, you know, you're leading a, a small group of instruct instruction, right? With a group of students. There's a lot to, there's a lot I think teachers possess that can be transferable into a formal leadership role. Um, I kind of go back and forth with, can everybody lead? I think most people have the capacity to be leaders. I think it's important to, like anything else, and I'm very passionate about this, to grow and to nurture your craft, your teacher, you know, teachers, not everyone, I don't believe everybody can teach, but I believe if you have the capacity to teach and you go out and you figure out uh, how you're going to get better at that every single day, much like a leader does, right? So there's the parallel there. 
uh, you will be successful. And from a leadership standpoint, um, again, going back and drawing down on some of the things that I've learned, you're right. I, I've had, I had to have a lot of empathy. I've had to put myself in the shoes of my students many, many times, especially at the secondary level, because, you know, students come in with, adult students come in with competing priorities constantly. They have to balance not only their educational pursuits, but family, professional obligations, you know, our night students, they're working all day, then running home, preparing meals, maybe for a family, jumping in the car, getting to class, being in class till 10 p.m., getting home, finishing assignments, and maybe not getting to bed till midnight, right? So there's a lot of empathy and a lot of understanding um, and a lot of emotional intelligence that a, a leader must have that we can learn from our students and from teachers and being in the classroom. Uh, so that's something that I, I definitely, I would say, have tried to focus in when I'm nurturing and growing ed education and academic leaders. One other, one other thing I think I'll end on with this is um, space is important. And I think you, you kind of alluded to it is I want to make sure that we are a learning organization, right? So you're creating a learning culture beyond just our students learning. So I want to make sure that our staff, our faculty, our fellow administrators do have the space and time to professionally pursue uh, those opportunities to grow, right? To grow not only as leaders and mentors, but also to grow uh, in their craft and grow uh, academically and make sure that space and those opportunities and those lanes are available. That's it's really important to me. It's, you know, we, we, I think we throw it around a lot being a lifelong learner. But there's a lot of talk in that, you know, in, in that in that sentence, right? Becoming a lifelong learner or practicing being a lifelong learner. Are you really pre, uh, promoting it and allowing your people the time to do it? Uh, one of the biggest feedbacks that I will always get as a educational leader is you want, especially from the faculty, is well, you want us to um, to have X amount of CEUs or X amount of professional development. But when am I going to do it? When am I going to have the time and the space and the resources to be able to execute upon that? So I just make sure that the leaders uh, that are under me, uh, that's front and center and that they're giving their people the time, money and space to do it. Okay. Wow. So much there. And I wish I could go deeper, but I am going to end the segment with the question that I typically ask. It's an important question because, you know, you've, you've been up the ranks. And so it seems like you've had this relative seamless ascension um, hopefully without too many hiccups, but we all do, we all make mistakes and, and, and no leadership journey is without its setbacks. So I'm curious, Robert, from, from your experience, what would you say has been your biggest mistake in your journey, specifically in your leadership journey? And, uh, and how did you, how did you grow from that? Yes, I think I, and this is a great question and there's, probably more failures sometimes, little failures, you know, along the way that produce all of these successes that that, that most leaders do end up having. Uh, I've been very fortunate. I've been uh, very lucky to be around some really great people. And I think focusing in on the recruiting and hiring piece, as I've already alluded to, is, is extremely important. I think where I have grown because I saw some early on struggles is the balance between uh, autonomy 
because that's how I thrive. I, I, I thrive under autonomy. Give me the assignment, give me the responsibility, show me how to do it, and then let me go and do it. And I, I thought early on, well, if, if I like that, everybody must like that. And truly, that's not always the case. There are people that we lead that do need, who are exceptional. They're wonderful at what they do. We brought them on because we believe in them, but they don't really succeed and uh, thrive in a, um, you know, in, in an autonomous environment. They need direction. They need daily uh, interaction. They will need those, uh, you know, bad boys, if you will, right? That that positive reinforcement. Yeah. And that's something that I didn't need or people maybe that uh, were above me and I was looking up to as leaders, but we do have people that do need those particular uh, pieces of in engagement uh, throughout the workday. So I saw that as an opportunity, but I learned very early on that that can get you into trouble is just yeah. complete autonomous environment. Go ahead, go at it. Now, I, I struggle with this because again, part of my book, Gen Exceptional and my philosophy leading like a Gen Xer, I have this mantra where I believe it boils down to three things. It boils down to hiring exceptional people, training and mentoring them, and getting out of their way. Now, that is a very simplistic approach, and I believe that as a Gen Xer myself, I thrive in that, but I have to be cognizant that not everybody does, and that we just can't blanket that approach across the spectrum. Uh, so I, I have had seen some uh, opportunities in my own leadership capabilities and the way I've executed leadership to go back and be reflective and try to clean some things up along the way. But early on, um, if I could go back in time, I probably would have been uh, a little bit more adaptive in how I've, uh, I applied that. Okay, great answer. And now we're going to transition rapid fire. So we're moving from long form to short, three action steps that every leader should do every day. Well, I, I already said the first one. I think wake up, set some time aside for yourself and for your passions. Uh, organization, you got to be organized. As you go up the chain, you know, uh, I think that you really have to just kind of hone in on your organizational skills and constantly revisit them. That's something I, I'm always doing. Every eight to 16 weeks in part of our program, I'm trying to figure those things out and readjust. And the last thing, uh, trust and verify. You know, I'm a big trust person, but I, I still to this day will have to go out of my way to verify, to make sure the people who are saying what they're they're doing and committing to um, are actually executing it. Two to three places you'd like to visit for the very first time? Three places. Well, I'm a traveler. I like to go South America. That's untapped for me. Um, I have two states, so that'll be my second and third one left on my, my list. I've been to 48, but Hawaii and Alaska. Oh, okay. Um, other than your own, a book that you gift or or read, um, I'm sorry, a book that you read or gift often. Oh, wow. Uh, that's a good one. Um, I think I've re-gifted and I know that I have uh, read more recently a lot of uh, information related to resiliency. Uh, that's a, a topic right now that I'm, you know, kind of passionate about and trying to uh, do a little bit of research for my next book. So anything, anything in the the space of resiliency. Okay. If you could share a message with the entire world, it would be. I, I keep it to three things. Normally uh, I like to tell people uh, eat the cake, 
buy the car, take the trip. Okay. Something you wish every parent understood about their children. Wow, that's a good one. But I, uh, I'm not someone, so I wish parents would understand that they'll get there. Not every child grows at the same rate or does the same things at the same, on the same timeline. Give them the space, let them get there. They're going to be okay. Finally, a productivity tip that helps you to get more done. Oh, that's a delegation. Delegation awesome. at the end of the day. So how can people connect with you, learn more about your work, find you online? Where are you hanging out? On Twitter, at Definis. Uh, I, I, I try to keep very active on, on, on my Twitter uh, X account, if you will. And then also drdefinis.com. That's where I kind of house all my information, everything that's uh, kind of going on with me, my new books, uh, anything that I'm putting out there into the universe, drdefinis.com. Awesome. Robert, it's been an absolute pleasure. But before we go, please leave us with one final life lesson. Just have fun. I mean, this, you know, we're not here. Time is brutal. Just have fun doing whatever you're doing, whatever your passion is. Go out there, do it every single day, do it with vigor, and uh, things will work out at the end. Awesome. It's been an absolute pleasure. Learned a ton. Keep keep fighting the good fight. You know, we need your message. We need your, your resources. And uh, thank you so much for coming on Lead to Succeed today. All right. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 